Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to another edition of Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff. Uh, we have with us today our co-host, uh, Brian. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Hey, doing really well, Jeff. Looking forward to this study on fruit of the Spirit. You know, in many ways, it's just the opposite of what we studied last week, right? The works of the flesh. Exactly. And for folks who may not have caught the uh, the previous podcast, if you want to view that as like you know, a part one, so to speak, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to that first before listening to this one. Because, Brian, as you alluded to, uh, we gave uh, some really good introduction overview about the whole key passage associated with the works of the flesh, Galatians chapter five, which we'll again use today. But you may want to go back to that previous podcast to get that uh, foundational stuff. Yes, definitely. And so one of the exciting things about the fruit of the Spirit is God's really telling us the spiritual qualities that we should put on as Christians and the spiritual qualities that will make us more like Him, ultimately. Exactly. And that whole passage within you know, Galatians 5, as I think you alluded to, is a very insightful contrast. And as like we kind of said in our teaser, you can kind of see both sides of works of the flesh through the spirit with a lot of words that are almost like you know diametric opposites right you know kindness instead of you know anger and wrath and etc so yeah to get a full picture it's definitely a good passage to look at both sides both the flesh and the spirit and again which is why we recommend people go back and review the the previous podcast yeah, so why don't we, Jeff, start off by taking a look at what the fruit of the Spirit is. And so for those of you listening, why don't you open your Bibles, if you have one handy, to Galatians chapter 5. And this week we're going to pick up in verse 22. So beginning in verse 22 of Galatians 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So, Jeff, that's the words that we want to take a look at in detail. In some cases, we'll look at the original Greek, and then certainly we want to give our listeners some examples from the Bible of how these spiritual qualities are shown throughout the Scriptures. Exactly. And as we said in our previous podcast, this particular section of Scripture, basically starting from roughly verse 16, kind of down through the end of the chapter, is very densely packed with a lot of words you know, some of the words are kind of related one to another, but some of them are very different. And so, yeah, we'll kind of slow down as we go through verse 22, verse 23, to kind of tease out uh, and understand in greater depth of what these things are talking about. Before we go there, though, starting off verse 22, you mentioned the fruit of the Spirit. So I did a little bit of research, at least from a, a Greek perspective, the word fruit here. You know, it's a general term. I mean, it can refer to physical fruit, can refer, you know, figuratively to you know, that which is an effect or that which is the result of something. Interestingly, this concept of fruit from a spiritual perspective, several passages associated with it as we kind of get started here. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, likewise Luke 3, verse 8, talks about bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, almost the opposite. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their, here we go, fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, you shall know them. Again, figuratively speaking, or deeds, actions, thoughts, etc. And finally, John chapter 15, verses 2 through 8. Again, using this analogy of fruit, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, he being God, that it may bear more fruit. And then Jesus encourages people to abide in him. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. So... Or without me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So bearing fruit in, in a spiritual sense that we'll go into more detail here in a few moments is critical you know, to being you know, counted a, as a faithful Christian. So as we kind of start this, anything else, Brian, you want to add in terms of just fruit in general? Yeah, it's interesting. Much like Jesus did in many other places, you know, he gives us this physical example to help understand a spiritual quality. And you know, as we get into these different fruit, I'll just let our listeners know it's interesting how in Paul's letter, letters to you know the churches of Galatia, which we're looking at now, uh, to the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, he gives very similar lists, if you will. So just uh, additional resources when you have some extra time, maybe after this podcast. You can also go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through 32, and then Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And there you'll see similar and even some additional fruit that's mentioned that's not necessarily mentioned here in Galatians, but they all go together. And as we looked at in our last podcast, you'll also see different works of the flesh. So if you look at all three of those, it really gives you a nice wide range of the spiritual qualities that we should have, and of course, the ones that we should cast off. Exactly. So as we kind of get into individual words, we'll start off with the word love. Now, if people in our audience are, are joining us and are, are not all that familiar with the Bible, this can be kind of a confusing term because, you know, within our English language, we use, or I might say overuse this word love to cover a, a wide variety or wide range of the emotions to include, you know, romantic love, sexual lust. Or even, you know, just strongly liking something or liking someone. So it's a very wide-ranging kind of term. But in contrast, the ancient Greeks had, uh, I believe, uh, at least three different words with very different meanings that they used to convey uh, different thoughts. The closest, uh, the word that they had for what we would call, you know, sexual, sensual kind of love, they had the word eros you know, from which we derive the word erotic. If we were talking about a brotherly, affectionate, family kind of uh, affection, phileo, uh, from which we, you know, derive the term Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love. But here in this context, it's a third word, a, a different word, which some Bible students may immediately recognize when I say the Greek word agape, right? Has kind of an um, interesting range of reading, meanings in, in our world. It's a little bit hard to pin down. Goodwill, charity, benevolence, putting others' interests first, self-sacrificing, all kind of wrapped up you know, within this word. And we can kind of see that um, meaning, if you will, from other passages. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. 
But God demonstrates his own love, there's our word, toward us that while we were yet or still sinners, Christ died for us. Not necessarily because we deserved it, not necessarily because you know we were wonderful people. No, he did this despite that. <laughs> and that is how he showed his love. John chapter 15, verse uh, 9 through roughly verse 13. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, especially verse 13, greater love, and that's our word of God, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Again, this kind of a self-sacrificial doing what's best for the other aspect of this I, I want to say emotion, but it's really more emotion. It's more like, you know, mental intent, mental commitment. It is something that's required of Jesus' disciples, John 13, 35. And if you want to kind of get a further definition, I think 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 gives a wonderful insight into what this agape love, how it acts. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So this kind of agape love, I think in some ways we see in practical experience, you know, for instance, you know, some of the, the personal sacrifices that a, you know, mother and a father, you know, make for the, the health and well-being and, and, you know, care of their children. For instance, uh, as we said earlier, it's what God through Jesus, you know, did for us, even though we didn't deserve it or merit it. That's the kind of love, you know, the agape love that's almost like first and foremost most, uh, is the you know, fruit of, of the spirit. Because from that, many other things will naturally tend to flow from it. Brian, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, that's a very important point, Jeff, because you're right. It's a foundational fruit that if we have this agape love, and if, as you mentioned and read in 1 Corinthians 13, it has characteristics where it's kind and does not envy and so forth, that allows us to build and really grow much more effectively. But it is a foundation, and, I, and it's probably why the Holy Spirit listed it first, right? It's just so critically important. Oh, it could be. Uh, and even, I mean, in, in some ways, it's an easy emotion to have, if the object or the person is a lovable person, right? <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. But it's not, it's not based on the other person. In fact, as we saw, it's what God did for us while we were still sinners. Didn't deserve it. Rebellious. Selfless. And yes. Selfless. Right, right. Uh, and so this kind of agape love will manifest itself even when the other person is an enemy. And, you know, in some ways you hear you know, passages within the Bible about loving your enemy. It's like, well, you know, that's hard to do. Well, and this is not an emotional, oh, I love my enemy. No, this is like a being willing to go above and beyond, go the extra mile for quote unquote people that we really can't, really may not like. Yeah. And one other quick thought before we move on, and that is mm -hmm. it's not easy, right? And certainly no. if we come out of the world and as you pointed out early on, you know, if, if, the world has defined what love means to us, and it's all essentially based in nature. It takes a little time and work to understand these concepts of putting others first. It's not about the physical, then on and on. So, 
Right. And, and in this sense, it almost sounds contradictory. It's like, you know, I certainly don't like them, but I need to love them. You know, agape, love them. Right. Yep. So the next word in our list is joy. And, you know, English, Greek, very similar, you know, gladness, cheerfulness, uh, quote unquote, calm, delight. We see people who received God's word with joy, uh, Matthew 13, 20. We see the disciples experiencing that after Jesus was resurrected. That's Luke 24, 52. Romans 14, 17, that kind of joy is used in an environment of righteousness and peace, which we'll talk about in a few more moments. But here's the interesting twist. It's even used in some contexts that sound contradictory. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 12. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Similar thoughts, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. So even though a fruit of the Spirit is joy, that joy can be experienced in a number of different circumstances, uh, even adverse circumstances. I mean, can we be joyful can we be cheerful, for instance, in the face of a pandemic, right, with a lot of sickness going around? Can we have that joy even under economic hardship or if there's lawless behavior, you know, going around our country or political upheaval? Well, this passage and others would say, yes, yes, we can have joy. Now, of course, this is joy over a number of different things to include, you know, being saved, having the forgiveness of sin. You know, having a relationship with God as one of his children. You know, joy over the encouragement that we can get from fellow Christians. You know, joy over when others obey the gospel. Or joy over when others, you know, repent from sin. You know, joy even when external circumstances would say, "Mm, no, you have no reason to be joyful. But as we see for this particular fruit of the Spirit, yes, you can have that joy. In fact, Brian, I'm reminded of a a song in our songbook that we sometimes sing, you know, count your blessings, Mm -hmm. you know, even when, (laughs) even when, you know, various things around us, admittedly, sometimes a lot of things are, you know, kind of negative, bad, you know, controversial trials, suffering, temptation, whatever, that we can still count our blessings. And as a fruit of the spirit, we can still have that sense of having uh, a sense of joy, a sense of being somewhat cheerful, a sense of, you know, somewhat being calm and, you know, continuing on regardless of, you know, things that are going on around about us. You want to add anything, Brian? Well, and as you know, there are passages that say rejoice always and, you know, we were to rejoice in the Lord. We have so many reasons to be joyful. And certainly the very fact that Jesus died for our sins, we can be reconciled to God and we can have a very special relationship through prayer and others. All of that should give us joy, even in the face of persecution. Exactly. So next, let's take a look at peace and long suffering. Those are the next two words. They really go hand in hand. And it's kind of interesting, this word peace, you know, just generally means quietness, rest. And one thing I like to do from time to time is do word studies. And I did a word study at one time on peace. And and I thought it was great because... It just shows you how, once again, multifaceted words like this can be. So, for instance, in the Bible, if you were to do a word study on peace, you would see that it can mean things like a harmonious relationship between men, right? So we have peace with one another, peace with God. You know, certainly when we sin, 
We separate ourselves from God, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. And through Christ Jesus, through our obedience, through baptism, we can restore that peace with God because when we, once again, sin, it creates a hostility. Peace can also mean, you know, freedom from persecution and molestation. Uh, that's a different kind of peace. Peace can mean a sense of rest and contentment, what we might call peace of mind, right? Uh, and then it can also just mean silence. So once again, very multifaceted word here. It's kind of a general term, but you know, certainly our goal as Christians is to be at peace with all men. So let's just take a look at one passage in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which with you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if we have the spiritual qualities that we're reading about here, we will always strive to be peacemakers. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So that gives you an idea of what God thinks about when we make an effort to make peace, even if at times people are persecuting us, being unkind to us, and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, Brian, I like that thought because in, in some ways the, the Bible gives us you know, not only it says we should have this peace as a fruit of the Spirit, but also gives us, you know, guidance on how to get it, right? Um, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 and 7. In everything by application, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, again, our word, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So here we have an interesting case where, you know, Galatians says, you know, we should have peace as a fruit. Philippians, you know, Holy Spirit through Paul says, and oh, by the way, a way of getting that is through prayer and being thankful and making your requests known to God. And then as a result of that, you know, this, this sense of, as you said, quietness, of calmness, of, of peace, even though. It's certainly not understandable in the situation we find ourselves in, can, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus and keep us from falling into perhaps, you know, sinful emotions again, like anger or depression or lashing out or giving up. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you reading that because really it's, as you pointed out, relief and protection from anxiety. God has given us that wonderful avenue of prayer where he's at, willing to listen to us. The next word, long-suffering, really kind of goes along with this in the sense, if you think about it, sometimes for us to be at peace with one another, we have to be long-suffering with one another. So when we look at this Greek word, it means forbearance, fortitude, patience. And so that gives us a sense of what it means. And, you know, the word does kind of describe itself. But uh, we see an example over in Colossians chapter 3 in verses 12 and 13. Here it says, therefore, as the elect of God holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. What a wonderful passage to me that helps to describe this in great detail. What does it mean to be long-suffering? Well, we have tender mercies, we're kind, we're humble, bear with one another, right? We forgive one another. 
And, you know, as it mentions here, just like Christ was willing to forgive us, we need to be willing to forgive others. And so that means that we're understanding. Maybe somebody has an anger issue. We understand that. We know that they're working on it. Well, it wouldn't be helpful if they became angry with us for us to snap back, right? Instead, we should be long-suffering. As we read in Proverbs, a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, we, we will once again go down the path of trying to be a peacemaker, but also to try and be at peace by being long-suffering with others. Well, and we certainly recognize we would want people to treat us that way. We want people to be patient with us. The golden rule, right? <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly where I was going to go. You know, Matthew 7, verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, right? So if, if you want to receive the, this kind of, you know, long suffering and patience and forbearance and etc., then you better be willing and, and actually doing that uh, to others. Yes, exactly. Golden rule. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Our next word, kindness and goodness. And I'll confess with, with these two words, I, I struggled to, to some degree because if you go into the Greek and if you go into where that same Greek word is used in other passages, it's in my view, and maybe I'm missing something, it's kind of hard to tease those two apart because it's almost like, well, what does being kind mean? Well, it means being good to people. And what is you know, being good to people? Well, it means being kind, et cetera. So we'll kind of go through this, but in, in some ways, as I said, I kind of struggled. So starting with kindness, what I could find from the Greek meaning moral goodness. Oh, well, okay, there we go. Kindness, goodness. Integrity, usefulness, excellence in character. Hmm. So if we look elsewhere, again, the same Greek word, Romans 11, verse 22, it's used as an attribute of God. Therefore, consider the goodness. See, in that word, says, there's the Greek word. But they, in this translation, they decided to put the word goodness as opposed to kindness, the goodness and severity of God. So now we got that contrast on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, again, it's within a context of tender mercies humility and long-suffering, being kind. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness, there's our word, and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, with which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So in some ways, this kindness, this goodness is kind of seen in our actions toward um, others, you know, acting with a degree of integrity, you know, some degree of patience, you know, intending to do them good, being kind, not being, you know, short, you know, with people, for instance, that's kind of kindness. And I'm just going to kind of roll on into goodness as well, since they're so tightly wrapped together. In this particular case, the uh, Greek word means uprightness of heart and life, kindness. Oh, okay, goodness equals kindness, kindness equals goodness. Virtue. It's used only in a few other passages. Romans chapter 15, verse 14, in the context of knowledge and admonishing one another, showing goodness. Ephesians chapter 5, 9, in a context of righteousness and truth. So again, kind of seen in our actions toward others, acting kind, acting good, 
acting with integrity, acting with virtue, etc. So very similarly uh, related. Brian, can you add any more light to it? Yeah, it's a wonderful quality to add. And, and I'll just point our listeners over also to Second Peter chapter 1, where it talks about adding to our faith. And, you know, it says, add to your faith virtue, beginning in verse 5. This is the second Peter 1, adding to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness. And to godliness, it says brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness and love. And so, Jeff, you know, we have this somewhat of a distinction, right? Brotherly kindness. and But ultimately, this is a, a spiritual quality that we see throughout the scriptures we need to add, because kind of like you said with love, if we have kindness, it can take us a long way towards having peace with others and and having these other spiritual qualities. Exactly. So let's move on now to faithfulness and gentleness. And faithfulness is a term that most of us probably know, you know, just means to be faithful. But it's an interesting word because, you know, we were talking about these multifaceted words. Well, here's another one. In the Greek, it comes from a Greek word, pistis which is found 228 times in the scriptures. And it has kind of multiple meanings depending on the context and what's going on. So for instance, you know, at a base level, it means moral conviction, religious truth, or, you know, the truthfulness of God. It says, you know, especially the reliance upon Christ for salvation, constancy, the system of the gospel, or, you know, the truth overall is often called the faith. And, you know, we see words like assurance and, you know, belief and, and those kinds of things that are, are terms that help us to understand what faithfulness means. So just to give a couple of examples at how this term is used, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a basic definition of faith. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were made of things which are visible. So this kind of faith says, I believe that there's a God. I believe that he created the, you know, the earth and those sorts of things. This is just a general overall belief, if you will, uh, in God. And, and then ultimately, as it says in that first verse, it's you know, being convinced of things not seen. And so if we now go over to James chapter one in verses two and three, here, James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, as you read earlier, Jeff. Then it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So now this is shifting into more about how convicted are you and how much foundational belief do you have that will produce patience? And will, when things get difficult, will you remain loyal to God's word and God's principles? And will you continue to live your life as a Christian? Or will you lose faith and you start to doubt? Or you just simply stop doing what God would like you to do? So, you know, faithfulness is so critical, as we can all understand fundamentally. And so, Jeff, these are just a couple of different ways where faith and faithfulness is used. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, and I think in some cases in our modern you know, religious world, you know, people may toss around the word faith or belief. You know, classic example, you know, I believe in you know, Jesus Christ and my personal Savior, for instance. And it sounds kind of superficial. It just sounds like an emotional sort of thing. 
but embedded in that sense of faith or belief or trust is this inherent concept of being faithful, which really says, yes, I have enough, as you said, conviction in my belief that I am going to act on it. You know, faith without works is dead. <laughs> For instance, you know, going back to James 2, where it will prompt certain attitudes, actions, behaviors. And as you pointed out with James chapter one, it can actually be tested. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we don't have, as you saw with some of the you know, disciples with Jesus, you know, sometimes we don't have enough of that conviction to, you know, take that step of, you know, the action, you know, we, we should be taking. And in other cases, if, if we do have enough faith and, and work our way through, you know, various trials, temptations, that will strengthen our faith and our conviction and our trust and strengthen the kinds of behaviors that we'll do again uh, as a result. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely more than just a shallow emotional acknowledgement. Yeah, very good points. Appreciate that. Uh, the next one is gentleness. And this is one of those words where most of us, at least I think we feel like we understand it, right? But if you look at the Greek, it's tied to humility and meekness. And so one example of this we see over in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass or, or sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So in this one sentence, it really teaches us a lot. Number one, of course, we always want to try to restore uh, those who are in sin. And sometimes the tendency can be, you know, if you feel like that person should know better, they should know that they shouldn't be drinking or they should know that they shouldn't be doing X. Well, it can cause us to be angry or it can cause us to be frustrated. And a result of that might be that we approach that person harshly and we rebuke them, and we tell them, if you don't repent, you're going to hell, and those kinds of things. Well, this passage teaches us that we should approach them with a spirit of gentleness, and some of this is just kind of logical, right? Would you be more willing to listen to somebody that comes up and starts yelling at you, or would you be more willing to listen to somebody that's saying kind words? And so, as obvious as that sounds, you know, once again, because of our love for the Lord, because we know that that person should know better, it's easy to slip into that, eh, let me just rebuke them. And, and rebuke does have its place. Don't get me wrong. But overall, if we're trying to restore somebody, uh, we should have this spirit of gentleness. And, you know, Jeff, in my own life, you know, I've just found with my relationships with my children and coworkers, you know, at times if, if people really frustrate you or you get to that, you know, orge type of anger where it just slowly builds, uh, it's easy to not be kind, but if we can just be gentle and if we need to make a point with our children to sit down and carefully explain it versus yelling them and say, do what I tell you to do, right? There's a clear contrast there. All right. Exactly. Well, and, and for some reason, the, the thought that comes to my mind is, you're, you know, you tend to be gentle with something that perhaps is precious, valuable, or maybe fragile. Uh, and so you want to be kind of careful with it. And, you know, in the verse that you mentioned, you know, certainly if someone is in sin and we want to try and approach someone, you know, we would want to try and do that in a, in a careful, you know, agape, loving kind of way, you know, certainly at least initially, right? As you said, you don't want to, you know, right out of the gate, just, you know, run roughshod over, right? Now, there may come a time to do that and be more pointed, but if you're really out of love trying to restore the person, you're going to approach them, like we said earlier, the way you would want to be approached. Again, back to the golden rule. 
and have people, you know, kind of quietly, gently, patiently you pull you aside, you know, try to see what's going on, try to explain various scriptures, et cetera, and working with you. Yeah. And those are the true characteristics of love, right? So, you know, as we get to the end of this section, so, you know, we've gone through the works of the flesh. We've just now gone through the fruit of the spirit. Jeff, it all kind of seems to be relating back to making sure that we have self-control because that will enable us to do these things. Exactly. And that is indeed the the next word in our list, you know, self-control. And, you know, English, Greek, very similar uh, from the Greek, uh, self-restraint, temperance, one who masters his desires and sensual passions. This particular Greek word not used very often in the scriptures, notably in Acts uh, 24, verse 25. So Paul is talking with a governing official by the name of Felix, which interestingly, as a side comment, uh, at least according to secular history, uh, he he was married. His wife was, uh, her name was Drusilla. And at least according to secular history, uh, not only was she the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa the first, but Felix had persuaded her to leave her husband to become his wife. And here comes Paul, you know, talking to him about self-control. <laughs> kind of interesting, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's appropriate, you know, self-control, restraint, temperance, uh, very applicable. Second Peter 1, 6, where, as I think you've kind of alluded to a little bit, it's one of a series of, you know, characteristics that we're encouraged to add, characteristics and behaviors, you know, to our faith. Yeah, this you know sense of self-control. I mean, we can easily see it when it's not <laughs> working, right? You know, with people that you know easily lose their temper, you know, shouting and screaming and profanity, or you know, lose you know, sort of you know sexual restraints to pursue whatever sort of you know sexual lust they want to have in terms of you know, pornography and fornication, etc. Or you know, loss of self-control when people you know get involved in things like you know drugs and alcohol and marijuana, etc. And so you know, as you said, this this sense of trying to control ourselves, you know, trying to put a damper on the natural things we may want to go pursue, but God and His love tells us, no, those, those are not good for you. You need to stay away from those. You need to have enough control, temperance, whatever, self-restraint to stay away from those. As we said, it is arguably one of the more foundational aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So, you know, almost like with bookends, you know, the very first word is like, you know, agape love, right? From which flows a lot of stuff positive stuff. <laughs> Here we have at the end of this particular couple of verses, you know, self-control, which should restrain you back <laughs> from doing the things you shouldn't be doing. And so they're kind of like working together with all these good words, so to speak, uh, in between. The other thing I just might throw in real quick, and, you know, in the concept of, you know, self-control, yes, indeed, this is something we should have, something we should work on. But in some ways, it's not just us. It's not just our own left to our own devices trying to have self-control. I mean, you know, for instance, I'm thinking about, you know, people on diets or people trying to exercise and, and sometimes you know, we get on their case for, you know, not having enough self-control to do whatever. But at least within, you know, religious, you know, spiritual things, you know, you're not on your own. I mean, we have uh, other resources at our disposal, you know, fellow Christians for, you know, receiving encouragement, you know, uh, periodic you know, worship services that, you know, likewise we can give and receive encouragement, encourage one another to do what's right. You know, we have the avenue of prayer, you know, Bible study, you know, even podcasts, for instance. 
you know, that we can use to, you know, augment our own internal, you know, uh, attempts at self-restraint and self-control. So I just want to throw that in there as well. Yeah, good point. And, you know, it's at the very end there. So after self-control, he says, you know, when you look at these fruit that we talked about, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, he ends verse 23 with saying, against such, there is no law. So what does that mean? Well, he's saying, you know, these are things that are not condemned by God's law, like the works of the flesh are. These are things that God wants us to put on. And so he goes on to say in verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So now, Jeff, we move into you are in complete control. You understand that there is this war between the flesh and the spirit. So as a follower of Christ, certainly, you know, as somebody that's put on Christ in baptism, we must crucify the flesh and begin walking in the spirit. So when we look at this term crucifying the flesh, well, we are crucified figuratively when we're baptized. We put to death the works of the flesh. That's an active thing we do in our own life, as we've been discussing. So these are all the sinful practices that now that we're Christians, we no longer follow. And really, we, we should have the attitude of Paul that we see in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I think Paul summarized it well, Jeff, where it's now we've changed, right? We have crucified those terrible works of the flesh. And now it's Christ driving the bus, if you will. It's Christ that's guiding us. Exactly. Well, and even from a practical perspective, if you know people are trying to, quote unquote, get rid of bad habits, you know, there's often the counsel that says, okay, if you're doing things you shouldn't, okay, we need to work on stopping those. And yet there's also counsel that says, but you can't just stop bad. You also have to fill that void, if you will, with mm, good. Yes. Right? And so, you know, within this passage, you, again, you kind of see both. You know, these are some things in our previous podcast, some things you need to stop. And in today's podcast, here are some things you need to do to sort of like, you know, stop those bad habits, adopt good habits, <laughs> to, so to speak, you know, fill fill the void because just not doing sin you know sins of uh, commission you know that that's good that's only half the equation there's there's also you know sins of omission you know things you should have been doing that you didn't do and of course you know bearing you know fruit of the spirit is it certainly falls into that category as well it definitely does and you know when you look at Verse 25, which kind of ends this particular section here where he says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And so, you know, as we read earlier in verse 16 of Galatians 5 here, where it says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking in the spirit simply means walking according to God's word and walking according to the fruit of the Spirit that we've just been studying. And so one passage I'd, I'd like to, to look at, Jeff, that I think that helps illustrate this, and if I could ask you to read it, it's over in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 18. And I really like this section of Scripture, Jeff, because I think it does a good job of helping us to understand what does it actually mean to walk in the Spirit. 
Okay, so starting with verse 8 of Romans 6. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So very interesting perspective there on what it means to walk in the Spirit. And we see things like in verse 11, you know, we're dead indeed to sin, alive to God. Verse 12, somebody that's walking in the Spirit does not let sin reign in their mortal body. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over us. And then as you read here in the last few verses, Jeff, we transition from being slaves of sin, enjoying sin, not really thinking probably a lot about sin, to becoming a slave of righteousness. And, you know, slave has such a negative connotation, but when you look in the Greek, you know, you're a servant, right? So we are serving righteousness. Righteousness is so important to us. And so when we walk in the spirit, we are gladly serving those correct spiritual qualities that God would like us to have. Well, and I like the point you made about, you know, servants, slaves, et cetera, because certainly within, you know, modern culture, when someone says slavery, you know, it's got a very negative connotation. And really, that's kind of the attitude we should have towards sin, right? You have become enslaved. You are a slave to whatever, you know, things we've talked about on our previous podcast. You know, you're enslaved to your anger. You're enslaved to your sexual lust. You know, you are enslaved to wanting to have, you know, selfish ambition. You know, you are enslaved to these various things. And we should have that same kind of, you know, emotional gut reaction that says, I don't want to be a slave. Yes. Okay, good, good. (laughs) Work your way out of that. Oh, no one wants to be a servant in that way. And yet in the same context, we should want to be a servant of God. That should be a source of pride, of joy. And as we've seen in some of the fruits of the spirit, it should be a source of, you know, love and and patience and calmness and peace, etc. To have him as our Lord as our master, as our good shepherd who wants what's best for us. That's right. And that's why I love how verse 16 says, you know, when you do that, you will not fill the lust of the flesh. Not a guarantee, but we're a lot less likely if we have a true love for the Lord and we are truly walking with these spiritual qualities. One similar passage uh, that I'll finish this uh, section on, and that's in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, this is talking about the old law, now we're under the law of Christ. It says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse six, key passage, for to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I think that summarizes it well, doesn't it, Jeff, about the contrast between the two. Yes, it, it most certainly does. In fact, as I said before, the uh, the previous podcast we had, coupled with this one, yes, ongoing struggle, night and day, so to speak, but between the two. Yeah, and so for this last section here, Jeff, you're going to talk about spiritual transformation because ultimately that's what we all have to do, right? When we become a disciple of Christ, we're baptized and so forth. Exactly. Yeah, I like the uh, you know the way that you had you know referred to uh, Romans eight, you know that talks about you know that contrast. Even two chapters earlier, you know, back in Romans six, you know, Paul makes that contrast as well. You know, talk about you know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right? Yes, yes, God forbid, or, or certainly not. Talk about being uh, baptized uh, into Christ Jesus, baptized unto His death, buried with Him through baptism. And to death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So burial, you know, death, burial, resurrection, you know, to walk in new life. Uh, verse six, our old man crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with it. We should no longer be slaves of sin. And we talked a little bit about that, you know, a little bit earlier, about being freed from sin. But the passage where I'd really like to go to is over in Ephesians uh, chapter four. And it's kind of a lengthy passage, and I won't read the whole passage. I'll just kind of highlight some key you know, words and phrases from it. But Ephesians chapter 4, roughly verses 17 through verse 32. Again, talking about spiritual transformation, putting off, putting on. So watch for those words as we kind of hit the high points. Verse 17, Paul says that you, know, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So now we have the beginnings of the contrast. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, old manner of life, old attitudes, habits, beliefs, actions, etc., which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And now here we have the transition. And that you, verse 24, put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, here we have a whole series of, uh, you know, put off and put on. Okay, so verse 25, put away lying. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So again, here's a case where being angry is justified, but be very careful. Don't want to go down on your wrath. Don't let it fester, so to speak. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, 
29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification. There's another contrast. And then let's really get into verse 31 and 32. And many of these words we've kind of seen already. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So again, like with Galatians chapter 5, here we go. Ephesians chapter 4, you know, very similar kind of concept. When you become a Christian, it is not just a superficial acknowledgement that there was a Jesus and that he's your savior and life is great. No, it's a putting off and it's a putting on. Putting off the old manner of life, putting on the new manner of life. And again, not that that occurs instantaneously. <laughs> Brian, like I think you've alluded to earlier, but it's, you know, it's the beginnings of Kind of like a process. As you said, there are some things that we, you know, you better stop <laughs> because it's sinful, right? Right. But there are others, it's like, you know, working your way out of these old habits that have perhaps been, you know, ingrained in your life for decades and now trying to move daily toward more of putting on the new man. Yeah. And the good news is God's given us the blueprint, right? We just studied it in Galatians 5. And as you pointed out, you know, over here in Ephesians 4, we're so fortunate to not only have the blueprint, but the good news is once we put on these spiritual qualities, it starts to become obvious to us how beneficial they are. You can just notice by how people react to you when you are showing these spiritual qualities. Maybe you're coming out of a situation where you were rough and tough on people and they just didn't want to approach you. And all of a sudden, they see somebody who's kind and gentle and loving, it's going to make a big difference, not just in your own life, but in the life of those around you. Exactly. So I think we're now about to transition over to like uh, the final segment of our podcast today, where we will give our audience insight into questions that are submitted to our website that may be especially relevant to the topic we're talking about. And we've got a couple today. One from a person by the name of Nishan, uh, related to the uh, works of the flesh. He asks, quote, is it a sin for a husband to make love to another woman if the spouse has lost interest or interested only with other work or want to have it, and I assume that means a sex act, only once a month or once in two months? What if she completely loses interest? End quote. Brian, how about that? At times, if you have a spouse, and as it's mentioned here, they are not fulfilling what the Bible teaches us as far as, you know, showing consideration to the spouse as it relates to, you know, quote unquote, making love and so forth. So, the, you know, the primary question is, is it a sin to make love to another woman if, you know, the spouse isn't fulfilling your sexual needs? And the, the short answer is yes, it's definitely sinful because it would be considered adultery. And so kind of as the very first works of the flesh states, adultery is a sin. Adultery is having sexual relations with, you know, somebody that's not your spouse. And so that's always going to be a sin regardless of the circumstances. And that's very important to understand because, you know, God expects couples to work out their differences, realize that the marriage is for life. And his intent is for us to be able to work through those difficulties. So whether it's seeing marriage counselors or you know, more importantly, looking at God's word and seeing what God's word teaches. Uh, that's really what God would like. But there's just no justification to divorce them and certainly don't have the right in this case to simply make love to somebody else within that marriage relationship, because that's clearly a sin and can clearly cause us to lose our soul. 
All right. Good point. Well, honestly, I'm reminded of First uh, Corinthians chapter seven as well, that talks about one of the key aspects of, I'll say, you know, Christian sexuality, according to verse one of First Corinthians seven. You know, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay. Verse two, nonetheless, because of sexual immorality or fornication, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Verse three, and let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to the husband. And then even within that context, uh, verse five, you know, don't deprive one another lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And as the person here is writing, you know, sometimes, you know, couples get into that situation and one person or the other, or sometimes both, you know, will seek that sort of, you know, sexual gratification, you know, outside of the marriage relationship. And that is most definitely not what God wants. In fact, it is so bad. It is the one and only reason that God gives for scripturally taking the marriage, taking it apart, so to speak, you know, going through a divorce, if you will, according to Matthew 19. It's it's that bad, the only reason. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Jeff, because ultimately it's important for a husband and wife to understand from a sexual perspective, the responsibilities that they have to one another. And certainly if we don't understand that, then it can lead to things like this. The next question we have, Jeff, comes from Francis, and this is a question that kind of centers around one of the fruit that we looked at. And the question is, what are God's instructions that guarantees peace in the home? So for this question, in some ways, I came up with three different ways of approaching it. I mean, first of all, let's look at God's instructions. You know, as we've talked about today, God wants us to put off many of the characteristics, attitudes, behaviors that can certainly ruin a marriage. I mean, put off adultery, fornication, quarreling, envy, unjustified anger, bitter hatred, selfishness, you know, even things like drunkenness, right? And the like, (laughs) which we mentioned uh, in our uh, previous podcast. And at the same time, God wants us to put on many characteristics that we've focused on today that can build a strong marriage, you know, agape love, putting the other person's, you know, needs first, you know, cheerfulness in the face of adversity, patience, kindness, self-control, etc. For instance, you know, speaking of instructions, you know, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 certainly contains a lot of good, you know, instructions to how to have a, a happy you know, productive marriage. And there's some teaching in here that some people may find offensive, but nonetheless, that's what God says, you know, through Paul. Verse 22, right off the bat, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, of course, that's immediately balanced in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And again, there you go. There's that agape, you know, self-sacrificing kind of love, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her. Uh, verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Then likewise, wrapping it up, verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I mean, there you go. There's some Solid instruction, you know, along with avoiding the works of the flesh and emphasizing the fruit of the spirit, that that all kind of works together as part of quote unquote God's instructions that would help within husband wife relationship and, you know, equally well with a parent child relationship, you know, within the home, you know, Ephesians chapter six, verses one through four. So that's, that's one aspect, I think, of the question. 
but there's a and there's another aspect so the thought is you know when everyone does what god wants yes biblical peace should characterize the home now at the same time husband and wife parent child you know we are human right and couples certainly from time to time may have i would even tend to say will have disagreements squabbles maybe arguments right and you know after all you know couples are fallible imperfect humans so indeed from time to time you may not have peace but if both couples or both spouses take you know god's instructions as almost like a you know north star navigation kind of thing or as like a magnetic north with a compass if you always kind of keep coming back to that as the goal, keep coming back that as the desired state, then spouses or you know parent children will keep trying to come back to what God would have the home to be. And that is a, a place indeed of peace, of calmness, of tranquility. So that's sort of like the second thing is just because you sometimes or often follow God's instructions, that's you know not a that does not mean it will always be <laughs> wonderful. You know, we'll have our challenges, but we'll just work through them, right? The third thought, and I'll quibble with the question a little bit. He used the word guarantee. And this is where things get a little on the sad side. You know, just because both spouses, for instance, are Christians, they're also free moral agents. And sometimes Christians will sin. But sometimes they will sin. They will refuse to repent. And they'll go on to continue serving themselves and their own desires and fleshly lusts, etc instead of serving God, or like with agape love, instead of putting the other's interests first. And you know those certainly are situations. So even though there are instructions out there that we certainly can follow, should follow, and in general do produce peace, it's not a quote-unquote guarantee. And one reason why I mention that, we see even in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 34, where he talks about peace, but he says it in a very interesting way. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so we see in this particular situation where if both people no longer are trying to serve the same God, trying to serve the same set of instructions, try to go by the same playbook, so to speak, there will not be peace. There will be, unfortunately, a tendency for you know animosity, et cetera. And so even though, I mean, in the best of situations, really, if both people are trying to follow the same Bible, the same rule book, you know, it's, it's still a challenge, right? And something that has to be worked on. But there are situations where even though both have been, you know, quote unquote Christians, that the you know family in the home can still be torn apart. Again, because one or the other or both choose to go back to, you know, serving the old man, for instance. Brian, anything you want to add? Yeah, very good biblical principles. And I like, you know, the statements you made that when everyone does what God wants, biblical peace will characterize the home. So one thing that godly couples understand is that there are going to be disagreements. That's just part of being married. You know, the Christian family 
understands that they have to resolve those differences as soon as they can. And that's why I like passages like Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse 26, where it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So when we do not work out our differences and we let it fester, uh, it's going to continue to divide. And, and there are some people in marriages, Jeff, I'm sure you'd agree that they just have bitter relationships and they're doing things like staying together for the kids and those sorts of things. So, you know, if godly couples follow, you know, the principles in God's word, well, they're not going to let the sun go down in their wrath. They're going to understand that that does give place to the devil if they allow those feelings and, you know, those differences to remain unresolved. Right. Well, and as we mentioned with Matthew 19, you know, setting aside, you know, the violation of the marriage vows by having you know, sex with someone outside the marriage, God intended, you know, marriage to be for life. And so if, if you if you know that, if you enter into that relationship with that first and foremost in your mind, then, you know, divorce is not even an option. It, it shouldn't even cross your mind. What should be crossing your mind is, well, we need to work this out. We need to work together for ourselves, but also in the sight of God and continue to, you know, keep on keeping on and, and not look for that quote unquote easy exit, right? Because really according to God, there isn't an easy exit. That's <laughs> right. Not there. You know, man may say, well, there's an easy exit. You know, it's no fault divorce relatively cheaply these days. I don't know, hundred, two hundred dollars Yeah. Irreconcilable differences. Go your separate way and, you know, try with somebody else. Uh, no, not an option according to God. Yeah, that's right. So, Hopefully everybody's found this podcast on the fruits of the spirit to be beneficial. As always, we like to point you to additional material on our website. Uh, if you go to our topic section and you choose the letter H, you can find articles on happiness and humility. In addition to articles, of course, we in many of these sections have previous Bible questions we've answered on these subjects. So H for happiness, H for humility. Uh, we have L for love. Uh, you can get more into that agape love that Jeff was talking about, P for peace, as we were discussing uh, just now, and then earlier also as you know, one of those fruits of the Spirit. And then uh, S for self-control. So please go to our website, take a look at those subjects. And you know, Jeff, ultimately, we, we always encourage people, of course, to take the passages that we looked at, take the points that we made, and confirm them to yourself by studying God's Word. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.